Good morning, Covenant College. Let's do this. I got to be honest, I'm pretty excited right now. So we're going to see how this goes because I got a lot I want to talk about and I'm just telling you it's good. Not because of what I got to say, but because of who we're talking about. Let's pray. Father, lift our gaze to the glory of your Son, who even now ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. Have you ever, despite just singing that song, ever felt like you weren't passionate enough about God? Maybe sometimes your faith is strong and your heart is grateful and, and you, feel, you feel close to God, but at other times, maybe even if we're honest, much of the time, because of, because of your sin, because of the busyness of life, maybe because of psychological challenges, the truth is we often struggle to believe, to praise God, to trust Him. What about, what about loving God, that phrase we throw around all the time? Does your love for God ebb and flow like mine does? Why can't I always be full of love for God. So which is it? Do I believe or not? Do I faithfully worship or not? And given the reality of the ups and downs of our Christian life, how might we find a, a solid foundation despite these fluctuations in faith and love and obedience amid the inconsistencies of worship? Let's talk about Jesus. I've got a theological question for you just to get us started. This one to get you thinking. Where is Jesus right now? Now I think you know that you're like, yeah, where is Jesus right now? Start to think about that. It's harder than you know. And what is he doing right now? I don't know how often you think about Jesus, and, and by this I don't mean just a historical figure 2,000 years ago, but I mean, I mean right now, I mean living, thinking, organically existing with a real body. Again, where is Jesus right now? And what's he doing? What's going on? The answer to those questions actually provides beautiful and life-giving hope for the Christian life. And so we're going to take some time to think about, we just have time to think about two things, and I'll warn you so you don't panic later. The first one will take the majority of our time. But we're going to talk about worship and compassion. Worship and compassion. And I'm going to be, what's shaping this whole talk is the, sorry, I don't have a Bible verse, it's the book of Hebrews. So read it once a, once a week for, for a month and then come talk to me. It's awesome. Here's the first point, worship. And I'm going to give you the punchline to make sure you don't miss it and then let's start unpacking it. Worship. Jesus is leading the worship. Jesus is leading the worship. Now here's the thing, we know the cross is central to Christianity. We just sang about the cross, but 
this is a little tricky because sometimes we can mistake a key emphasis for a totality. You get what I mean? We, we take a key emphasis and we think it's everything. Listen, you, you can't make sense of the gospel apart from the cross. But the cross itself only makes sense in light of the entire human life of Jesus. And by that, I don't, when I talk about the life of Jesus, I don't just mean the life he lived in dusty roads of Galilee 2,000 years ago. No, I'm actually talking about the resurrected and ongoing life, human life of Christ. We've entered Lent and soon at Easter, we will all proclaim this truth. He lives. And just so you know, he doesn't just live in your heart. He doesn't just live in your heart. Without his life pre-cross and post-cross, the cross and its cosmic significance are undermined. So we need to make sure we understand from the womb of Mary to the darkness of death. And from the darkness of the tomb as he rises to his ongoing physical heavenly presence. Jesus' entire human life is meant to shape our hope. And I want us to explore this morning why. And here's the short answer. Because worship matters. Worship matters. Worship is what brings God and humanity together. Humans were made for communion with God. We, were, we, were, we, we call that worship, right? Worship is the very thing... Because we worship God, out of that worship of God, we're able to love our neighbor. Out of that worship of God, we are able and enabled to cultivate shalom in this world. What I'm trying to help you understand is that worship is not peripheral to being human, right? It's not like a nice added bonus. Worship's actually core. Worship is the fuel. It's the guiding, it's, it's, it's the guiding power. Worship is the heartbeat of being truly and fully human. We were made to worship the Creator, and that includes gratitude and praise, delight and honor. But as you know, sin, sin twists and undermines that worship. And as you know, so sin enters the world, and instead of turning to God, we turn away from God. And the reality is, I think the Apostle Paul is right on this, even non-Christians may not be able to articulate this, but as humans, we sense something's wrong. Something is wrong. But even as Christians, this lingering presence of sin in our lives and in the world makes our faith, our hope, our love, and our ability to trust God at best uneven. It can be so hard for us to worship God consistently. And this is partly why you don't just need the cross, but you need the resurrection. Again, the cross is beautiful because by the cross, we discover that our sins are wiped away. If we trust in Christ and his cross, our sins are wiped away. That is a good and a glorious gift. 
But I want to make sure you understand this. The gospel is not simply about the forgiveness of sins. Did you know that? It's not less than the forgiveness of sins, but it is definitely more than just the forgiveness of sins. Let me put it to you this way. God isn't, this is, until you understand this, this is partly why you think the Christian life's boring. It's just about getting forgiven. God is not interested in blank slates. Or, let me put it to you this way, God is not interested in just kind of getting cleaned up corpses. That's not what he's in. He's interested in resurrection life. His goal for us is not death, it's life. And just so you know, when I'm talking about resurrection life, I am not just talking about a future existence for you. This has everything to, our, to do with right now. So, without ever leaving behind the forgiveness of sins, the author of Hebrews puts it in a larger story, and here is the story in one sentence. Jesus is not just the one we worship. He is also the lead worshiper. He is our life. And I want to explain this. Hebrews says of him that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Right? Not only does he represent God to us as the apostle, but he is the founder of our salvation. And he represents, and I know you kind of know this, so we're going to slow way down to make sure you get this. He represents us to God as the high priest. In Hebrews and elsewhere, Jesus speaks, you see it all the time, but we haven't really thought through it. Jesus speaks of God the Father as his God. As his God. Hebrews 1, John 20. This is a glorious mystery and paradox. Somehow we can and must speak of Jesus as our God, and yet the Messiah is also the man who perfectly trusts God. The one who was made a little lower than the angels, going into death in order to ascend as a human being, that those of us who are connected to him by the Spirit might enter the heavens ourselves. Let me make... My guess is, I've been around long enough to know, my guess is you don't actually know this, but what I'm about to tell you is classic Christian orthodoxy. Do you know that when Jesus ascends into the heaven, he does not shed his humanity like a, like a snake sheds its skin? That's not it. When he ascends into heaven, his humanity is not vaporized. It is not destroyed. It is glorified. But he never stops being fully human. The enfleshed Son ascended and is at the Father's right hand. And there, right now, He's our representative and our head. Let me give you a little bit, let's start to flesh this out a little bit. So in Hebrews, it quotes from Psalm 22. Just in case you don't know what Psalm 22 is, this is an amazing psalm. It's a lament psalm. It begins, you'll know the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a stunning psalm, right? A song of lament. And you'll know that because that is the psalm that Jesus is singing or praying on the, ver on the cross. Oh, and that's so good to unpack, but that's not for today. But in that psalm, in the middle of it, there's a verse that the author of Hebrews takes and puts into the very mouth of Jesus. 
And he says, Jesus says this. Listen to the text. I, Jesus, will tell of your name to my sisters and brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is speaking to God when he says, your name, your praise. In both his proclamation and his praise, Jesus is referring to the Father. Now, there's some debate, we're not going to get overly into this, but some scholars will say, this reference to Jesus singing and leading the praise, this, this had to be during his earthly life. And there's some reasons to, to see that that could be. And others say, no, 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 <clears throat> this is actually all about a future time in the consummation and glory. And then others will point to other evidence and say, no, 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 this is about him singing right now in his church. And if you know me at all and actually just think it's, it's in the Bible, I think that's, a, that's making us make a choice you shouldn't make. It's a bad choice. The truth is there's something to all of these within the larger framework. We know Jesus sang. Do you know, for example, in the upper room, he is singing the songs of Passover? But we also know, as the exalted one, he sings now with the ecclesia, with the church, where two or three are gathered. And he will continue leading the praise into eternity with all the tongues, with all the tribes. His truly human life is a worshiping life. He was, is, and will be the leader of our worship. Now, I know I've been giving you a lot of data. Don't worry, you're going to get some illustrations soon. But I want to make sure you get this. So some of you know this text. But let me remind you of Zephaniah 3.17. It describes God. But now in Christ, we see it very clearly. Here's what he says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I remember, since I have kids here, I won't tell you which one. You can work on it later. But I remember when I had, uh, when you know, because we're bad parents, we watched a scary movie years ago when they were little. And I woke up in the middle of the night and heard one of my kids crying. And so I went up, and sure enough, they were, they were pretty distraught and a lot of tears, kind of, you know, shaking and stuff. One thing, like, they were real small, and I remember holding them and praying over them and then singing. And that distress started to calm down, and slowly then they fell asleep. And because I want my sleep, I tried to put him to bed. And then guess what happened? I woke up. Woke up again. And the reality was, as long as I stayed and sang, there was comfort and rest. In the presence of that song. Have you ever wondered what happens when you and I sing or when we pray? Maybe even this happened to you just a couple minutes ago. You're singing or you're praying and the reality is everyone's like into it and you're like, what am I going to eat for lunch? You know what I mean? 
Or even you're reading your Bible and you, don't, you can't remember what you read three minutes after you finished it. What about your mixed motives? You don't love God with pure motives. You don't love each other with pure motives. You don't even love yourself with pure motives. What do we do with that? We're trying to believe, to pray, to sing, to love God, but it's also far from perfect. Do you know what happens in these situations? Have you ever seen one of those, have you ever seen this in life or in like a video where you get a little kid and you're trying to lift something way too big for it? There's no way they can lift it. They're like, Arr! And so the clever parent gets behind them and they don't know it and starts to lift it. And the clueless kid is all of a sudden like, oh, right? They think they're awesome. The reality is they couldn't even get it off the ground on their own. But the parent gives them this strength. It's kind of like worship. Jesus leads our worship not because God, not because God the Father can't stand to look at you. That's not biblical or true. No, as our loving Father, He so wants us in His presence, He sent His Son to become human to lift the weight, to make something beautiful, even through our uneven attempts at worship. So let's return to the question, why do we think it's so hard for us to worship God consistently? Why do love and passion and delight for you and my, why do they ebb and flow so much when it comes to God? Honestly, I think the short answer is because our sin makes it so hard to see God. I mean, just think about your life. We, you and I tend to be so much more aware of our sin and of our failings and of the brokenness of this world and all the demands. It makes us very hard for us to see God's presence and grace. The hurt and the brokenness of our hearts and the world overwhelm us. So hard to behold God's holiness, His love, His wisdom and might. Simply put, sin makes it hard to see God and therefore our worship is uneven and forced so much of the time. You know what I mean by that? But consider the resurrected and ascended Jesus. Do you know what Jesus beholds? He perfectly beholds God. And responding as our great high priest, he offers not just the once-for-all sacrifice of his death, but also the ongoing life as the leader of our worship. As the high priest, he's not, he's not, again, he's not in heaven trying to convince the father, like, oh man, I really think you should love him. And, he's, and the father's like, ah, I hate him. They're so ugly and bad and sinful. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I love him. Like, that is, if that's still your vision, you don't understand the gospel. And I'm sorry for those who told you that's what it is. No, 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 no. He's not trying to convince the Father. Jesus ascended is the internal embodiment of the Father's love for us. Make sure you don't miss the wonder of the good news. I want to make sure you get this. God doesn't just want to save us. He doesn't just want to save us. He wants us. Do you see the difference? 
He wants love. He wants love given from him and returned. So here's what God does. Love flows from the Father in the power of the Spirit through the Son that he becomes one with us. And so God's love is centered on Christ. And as Messiah then, we see the depth of God's love, but it doesn't stop there. The Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. He connects us to the risen and ascended Christ who with his human hand grabs our hand and takes us up into the heavens. And so where he is, we are. He carries us before the Father. He is worshiping. I don't know if you understand this about the gospel. This is as slow speed as I can go. Are you ready for this? This is crazy. God doesn't just love us. God doesn't just love us. God in Christ loves God for us. I'm going to say that again. God in Christ loves God for us. So that we can't even screw that up. Sometimes the gospel is like, God did this stuff so we would love him. Yes and no. That's why you're struggling. You're like, my life, I don't love him that much. Oh, no, no, no. Our fragmented prayers are woven into his powerful petitions. Our weak songs of praise are amplified by the singer of redemption. Our inadequate and incomplete offerings are made whole and beautiful because they are brought before God by the ascended Messiah. He is our God, but he's not just our God. Somehow, I'd... He's also the high priest. He's the king. He's the representative. God doesn't just love us, but as the incarnate son, Jesus loves and worships God for us. We worship because Christ worships. Let's talk about compassion. One of my great pet peeves is when someone makes a judgment on me or something else with very little information. Maybe they judge you as lazy and they're clueless about your health issues. Maybe people say that you should control your eating with just greater willpower, not realizing how abusive treatment in the past has made things so much harder for you to navigate your anxiety. It's not that when people judge, they're 100% wrong. But in their ignorance, they suggest unkind and inadequate solutions. They don't know enough. And therefore, they don't really get you or the situation. Praise God, Jesus is so different. He's full of empathy. Listen to what Hebrews says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is tempted as we are, yet without sin. You ready for another theological question? How much does God know? You know the answer to that. God knows everything. You're like, God knows everything. Great, right? So God actually does know everything. He, so God, as God, he knows, because he knows everything, he knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to have human longings. He knows what it means for us to have questions and difficulties. God knows everything. That's true. Then why in the world, though, in light of that truth, 
does the author of Hebrews seem to make such a big deal about this idea that Jesus is sympathetic? Why does it seem to make such a big deal that his being tempted, his experiencing suffering, his experiencing disappointment, his facing rejection, why does that seem to matter? Are you ready? Don't miss this. Because God has always known everything as God. He knows everything. But now in Christ, he knows everything from the human side. He knows it from the human perspective. He knows it as a man in a particular place, at a particular time. And the author of Hebrews says, going through this, Jesus is made perfect. That's confusing to us because we often confuse perfect and sinless. They're not the same thing. Biblically, perfect just means full or complete. Jesus became perfect. He completed the task. He became fully and truly human going through all of these things. And as Hebrews says, this one who shared our flesh and blood, who partook the same things that we did, is our merciful and faithful high priest. You ever feel like God doesn't get you? He doesn't appreciate how lonely you are? Maybe you experienced abuse and you feel trapped and dirty, maybe even distant from God. You don't feel like he gets it. Maybe it's your crippling anxiety. Maybe it's chronic pain. Maybe it's how you've embarrassed yourself in the past. I don't know what it is. But do you know that no one in the entire world, including yourself, nobody knows you better than God. No one. And this, and Jesus, here's the thing, Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to our destructive behavior. He's not ignorant of it, but he is driven by love and sympathy. And so when he comes, he always comes from a position of grace, of understanding, of wisdom. You don't have to say, but God, if you only understood, he gets it even better than you. And he comes in love. So the author of Hebrews, drawing from Psalm 22 again, says, Jesus says, he is not ashamed to call us Adelphoi. He's not ashamed to call us sisters and brothers. Because God is our Father. By the spirit of adoption, we are brothers and sisters of the eternal Son who became human. Again, Jesus is not trying to convince the Father to be compassionate toward us. It is not that Jesus is compassionate and the Father isn't. No, He, Jesus, is the greatest expression of the Father's compassion for us. He's the radiance of it. God knew the problem was not just our sin, but our inconsistency, our weakness, and our failing. So God doesn't just deal with our sin on the cross, but Jesus ascends. Jesus is the intercession. His flesh, his body, his, he's not pleading with God to love us. He is the intercession. His flesh, his body, his very presence at the right hand is the intercession. He is the sacrifice, the temple, the prayer, the praise. He is the priest, He's the king, and he always comes from a posture of sympathetic understanding. Let me conclude. We're told that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. 
But we also discover in Scripture sometimes he rises and stands. He stands when his people are hurting or in danger or in distress and need. Jesus is not indifferent. He is not distracted. He will, in the end, make all things right for his people. And you know how we know that? Because he lives right now. A consistent refrain throughout the book of Hebrews is this. Draw near. Approach God with confidence. Draw near. Thomas Goodwin I need two minutes, and it's worth it. Because I want to make sure you get this. Thomas Goodwin is a Puritan, helped write the Westminster Confession of Faith, and he wrote this wonderful book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Unto Sinners on Earth. And in that book, he has this one sentence. He said, he's talking about Hebrews 14, 4.15, the high priesthood. He says, take your hands and lay them upon Christ's breast. Let us feel how his heart beats and, our bow- and his bowels yearn toward us, even as he is now in glory. Have any of you seen the movie Amelie in 2001? It's a French film. Amelie is this little girl whose father never touches her. He's a doctor, and he thinks she has a heart condition because once a month he will take his stethoscope and touch her heart. And because she's so excited to get his attention and his touch, it beats faster. Keep that image in your mind. Do you understand what Goodwin just said? Do we have the bravery to take your hand and now, as Christ is in heaven, lay it on Christ's breast and feel how his heart beats? When Christ sees you, his heart beats faster. His bowels yearn. That's how he thinks of you. He is driven by love, by sympathy, by mercy. Our great high priest, he not only loves us, but he loves God for us. So that even our weak efforts and sin-laced struggles, our inadequate prayers and praises, these rise to the heavens as a glorious incense. Beloved, you are in God's love. It's so much deeper and more refreshing than we ever dare believe. And when we get just a taste of it, I think the only way we can respond is the way God made us. Worship. Let's pray. God, that is a lot for a Friday morning. But you know the stories and the people here, and I pray that it might bring a word of hope a sense of feeling known by you and loved by you. Give us the courage to believe you're as good as you are. Lift our gaze to the risen and ascended and reigning King. Amen. Amen.